The following podcast is sponsored by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs recommends Daryl Lee Australian licorice for all your candy cravings. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. Interstellar 1984, Casino Royale, Tomorrow Never Dies, Arrival of the Matrix, Tron, Tron Legacy, Ex Machina, Equilibrium, It Follows, Little Shop of Wars, Not Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Working in Love and Bond, Walking the Avengers, Star Wars Episode 2, Tech Clones, Great New World, Journey, and Night Shadows, The Happening 2001, The Spaces, The Favorite, Outlook, The Spaces, 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 The Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, I'm talking to my good friend, writer, film lover, and photographer, Esther Ko. Hello, Esther. Hi. I'm fine, thanks. Don't mention it. Yes, I'm so glad you started with that. That is such a great quote. That's one of my favorite quotes from this movie. Uh, I'm fine, thanks. Don't mention it. (laughs) Esther, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Why don't you tell the audience what movie we're going to be talking about today on the podcast? We are going to be talking about Alphaville, which is directed by Jean-Luc Godard and was created in 1965, I believe. That's right. The 1965 classic sci-fi film, Alphaville by Jean-Luc Godard. This was a very interesting pick for, for this show. I am very, very glad that you picked it for me because honestly, I wasn't aware of it. Uh, I, I don't think I'd ever heard of it until you suggested this movie. And within moments of watching it, I was confused. I was lost I was worried that the plot itself was lost and that it wasn't that it was just going to remain absurd and surreal and impossible to follow but as soon as I realized what the world was that I was getting immersed in I loved it and I and I this is probably going to come up a lot in our conversation but I ended up writing down the names of a lot of movies that this reminded me of and the reason for that is because this is the progenitor of so many sci-fi movies. So I'm very, very glad that we're reviewing it today. So thank you again for choosing. Yeah, absolutely. Not only, I think a lot of filmmakers have been influenced by Godard and the whole French New Wave scene, but it feels very fitting because they in turn were very influenced by American films, Hollywood, Westerns, film noir, which is very obvious in this one. That's true. There's definitely a lot of American cinema influences here. There, uh, I, one detail I noticed right away was that our main protagonist, who at some points goes by Ivan Johnson or Ivan Johnson, he, who <laughs> I wrote down that he looks like a mix between John Hamm and Walter White. And uh, the only reason I wrote down Walter White was because I couldn't remember John Hamm's character from Mad Men. <laughs> it's, is it... Don Draper. Thank you. Okay. So yes, this guy to me with the hat on and everything uh, and like with a gun always in his pocket, neither of those, well, no, Walter White did carry a gun occasionally, but, but yeah, that's the visual that I got every time he was on screen was like, this guy is, is such a, he's, if, if you are creating a character in a video game and you choose the male uh, detective template or male like reporter template, this is what you start with. And then you start customizing it. (laughs) Yeah, so actually the character of Lemmy Caution was a film noir character in a bunch of movies in France. 
starring an American detective. And it's your classic. I, I try to watch a few of them. They're not very good, but they're kind of exactly what you would think of like the, the hard-boiled detective, the femme fatale noir. So let me caution, is that kind of like a James Bond? Yeah. Where, okay. Yeah. It's an archetype I mean, and it's... It, it is. And I think there was a reference in Alphaville to James, right? It was like, he called himself 003, I think. 003. I think Flash Gordon, he he tried to use that name at a certain hotel yeah. or he was asking about Flash Gordon as though he's a real person, which, yeah, this, this movie plays a lot with the boundaries of reality and what is surreal and what is fiction and what fiction exists in the real world and vice versa. It's like you said about this is a very reflective movie where it influenced a lot of things, but it was clearly influenced by a lot of the the modern time that it was created in. For example, I, Ivan Johnson or Lemmy Caution, he uses clearly American dollar bills, American money. There's a part where he's, he's paying somebody and it's American $1 bills. Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, amazing. I was going to ask you about that, but I... Oh my uh, gosh. No, I've never noticed that. That's oh, so fascinating. Funny. That we owe robots versus dinosaurs. We always discover new details <laughs> about movies. I should add a section that's just like, what is something I noticed watching this movie for the hundredth time? Because both myself and my guests often discover new things about this movie or whatever movie we're talking about that day. Yeah. Uh, and this is no exception. My theory is, well, he comes from New York. So of course, like he would have American money, but later on in the movie and throughout different points, they talk about it in a strange roundabout way. There is a method of traveling between what they call the the outer countries and Alphaville. I suppose Alphaville, because it is such a surreal place that it's hard to get a grasp of what the rules of reality are, American money would probably be just as good as, as monopoly money, you know, or, or any money. Anything that you're using as currency would probably be accepted in Alphaville. Right. I have some theories about the time that this was created and some of its real life influences, I think are very clear whether, you know, Godard would stand by them today or not. I think the Holocaust and the atomic bomb are both very present in this film. Also, the the kind of divide between the collective society versus the individualistic society, which let me caution very much represents. The interesting thing is that he says he's from Nueva York, not New York or Nouvelle York. I didn't catch that. Yeah. That's a fascinating deal. Let's unpack that because that <laughs> there's got to be a lot of significance into the, to this. I, like I said, when I first started seeing the first frames of this movie, I was lost. I was confused. But then I started to realize, and I'm not familiar, I'm not super familiar with a lot of Jean-Luc Godard's work, but I get the sense that he doesn't have any, any mistakes. There's nothing in this that isn't a, a, a deliberate detail. I would actually argue with that a little bit because he okay. is notoriously improvisational. There's a funny story around this film. His entire method was sort of like run and gun, shoot on location, no light setups, just whatever natural light with like a little camera and just had his actors do whatever and kind of just made it out of that. And there's a story in this movie that the backers wanted a script from him. So he had his assistant director write this script and the AD was like, I've never seen or, or read a Let Me Caution movie. I don't know what to write. And he was like, just watch one and then write one. Huh. And so the AD wrote a script like completely on his own and submitted it to the backers. 
and they gave him the money to make this movie and he didn't use a single word from that script. Oh, brilliant. Is that why in the opening credits, it says in one of the title cards, a strange case of Lemmy Caution? I think that's just an homage to the episodic Lemmy Caution in. Gotcha. Okay. So this is like Alphaville is like another tomorrow. It's tomorrow never dies. It's it's Casino Royale, right? It's the next right. chapter of, okay. Yeah, okay. That makes some sense. to uh, another galaxy. Yeah, literally another galaxy. That's that's a really good tagline for this movie. If James Bond went to another interdimensional galaxy, though, like it's it seems to be it's not the Alphaville is not is not uh, they they talk about galaxies. They talk about traveling through galaxies, but I get the sense that they don't leave the planet. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I missed a line of dialogue. But the fact that he literally drives a car on on what they call the ring road, or oh, I wrote it down somewhere. Yeah, it's okay. The, <laughs> the rainbow road that he's driving that. Oh, the, the interstitial space, which might have been a typo in the translation. I think they meant interstitial space. But I wrote down in the captioning, it said interstitial space. Natasha and I traveled all night through the interstitial space to go from Alphaville to Nueva York. Yeah. Actually, I, I noticed that too this time. I read it as interside real. Oh, um, but I don't actually know the pronunciation of that word. And I looked it up because I also noticed this is a word I don't recognize. Mm. It actually means between or among constellations or stars. So interstellar is the word we would use. Oh, that makes that makes perfect sense. Okay. That makes perfect sense and that that adds to the list of movies influenced by this movie Interstellar. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, Nueva York. So you mentioned that it's not Nouvelle York, right? Because everybody, everybody in this movie mostly speaks French. There's Henry who, who says a few phrases and things in English. And occasionally we hear English phrases, but the common spoken language is, is French. So yes, that's a, that's a really good question. Why doesn't he refer to New York as Nouvelle York? I'm shrugging my shoulders right now. Okay. I mean, you know, okay. we can have... I'm sure we can both come up with theories, right? I think mm. this movie definitely traffics in a lot of these weirding of real life things, like mentioning Flash Gordon as a real character. It could be one of those things where rather than referencing New York as a real place with a real association, by making that little change, you kind of get the reference to the real thing, but you're placed in a reality that is somehow different. Okay. I also had a take on it where it might have been like in Firefly, where everyone in Firefly sort of casually speaks a mix of English and Mandarin. And it's because it, like in this speculative future, America and China are the, are the two major superpowers that exist. So everyone just sort of speaks this general patois. Um, so I thought maybe the, this movie was speculating on like, this is what New York in the future, based on demographics, will be commonly referred to as Nueva York. When, when you're in another country and you're talking about it, you wouldn't say New York anymore in this version of Godard's future. Well, I don't, is this the future? Is Alphaville in the future? Or is it so, in the present 1965? So there was, again, while rewatching this, I noticed two references to time. One was, he says, back in 64, I think, referring to the past. Doesn't say 1964, just says 64. And then there was another reference to Americans and Russians fighting a space war 
I believe, mm. 30 years ago. Huh. Okay. So that would place the film maybe in the 1980s, it, but also this could just be an alternate reality where that happens in 4055. Yeah, I was going to say that if it's 30 years after what sounds like they're obliquely referring to the Cold War, if that ended in, in 1980, in the 1980s, then... Yeah, it's actually, it would be like this movie takes place in like the early 2000s almost, or like now. Well, he wouldn't have known that the Cold War was going to end in the 1980s. No, that's true. That's true. I was doing the (laughs) math based on when it started. Sure, yeah. But I I do think the movie deliberately disorients you on on that detail and on other details. Well, so that's interesting that you're saying that Jean-Luc Godard is notorious for having mistakes in his movies or improvising. I guess what what happened is he convinced me that there are no mistakes. I was so taken in by the world that he created and by the filmmaking, just the the techniques of filmmaking that he used in this, that I started to appreciate it knocking me off balance, putting me on, on my back foot a lot. So... I guess I assigned a lot of significance to certain things. Like, like it, it, there, occasionally the sound would just disappear or the soundtrack would be v- a very strange contrast to what's going on on screen. Uh, one example was when Ivan was walking, I think it was Natasha, it was, it was a woman and they, I think they're deliberately meant to sort of resemble each other a lot and, and blend into one another. But I think yeah, it might have been- the same haircut. And the same dress. And they're and they like, there's two of them that are very clearly different maids, but they both introduce themselves as the level three seductress. And they like walk him to his room and say the same script about, would you like to sleep now? Or something like that. So I'm not sure exactly when this was, but Ivan was walking someone down, down a flight of stairs and the music just cuts out. And then there's like, a chase scene where they're like sort of almost this Benny Hill music is playing as they're comically <laughs> chasing each other and shooting each other with guns. And I, I was assigning a lot of significance to those sound cues, to that to that soundtrack. But if it's all just like improvised and a mistake, cool. No, so I'm going to push back on my pushback, which is that uh, while, you know, the style was very improvised and the script itself was very improvised, he also uh, subscribed to the kind of auteur theory. He may have invented the auteur theory of filmmaking, which is the film is the director's vision and that all of the films that a director creates kind of coheres into a theme, idea, style, whatever you want to call it. So he would take a lot of ownership over everything in the film, including the sound effects and the placement and what each beep means. Those were all, I'm sure, choices in the end. Okay, okay. I think that makes a lot of my questions make sense, which we're going to get to. Let's let's look at, I always like to, to take a look at the opening shot of a movie because I feel like it, it places you, it's the director's way of placing you in the POV. It lets you know who's the protagonist, whose perspective are we about to have throughout this story. And it's not always, it's, we don't always see the protagonist right away, but we usually see like something from their point of view. And in this case, I, I got um, these bright, bright lights. As soon as the title credits ended, it was just bright lights blinking with this booming brass, very, very jarring. And it's revealed to be a stoplight. And our, our protagonist, I, I want to say our hero, but I'm not quite sure if Ivan Johnson is my hero. 100%. But he is your hero? No, no, no. I 100% I agree with you. 
Okay, yeah, that he's he's a complex character yeah. <laughs> to be kind. But uh but yeah, he's waiting at a stoplight. There's a really cool shot a pan up and down the building and we and we just get this very jarring soundtrack to accompany it and the bizarre reality of this world happens in a in subtle ways and they lay the groundwork for it to really pay off later i start this started feeling like brave new world very quickly to me though as soon as ivan johnson is brought to his room by the first maid the first person who I'm not convinced that they're definitely people. She might've been some sort of robot, but she leads into his room. I think, um, so I haven't watched this movie in a while. And when Mm -hmm. I first mentioned this movie to you, I was like, I think there are robots in it. They're like kind of seductresses. Cause I, I couldn't remember if they were actually people or robots. And then I was like, no, there's another whole other robot. So yeah, I think that's apt. There definitely is a whole other robot that we're going to talk a lot about. And I <laughs> I have a question. I just want to tease a little bit for the listeners uh, that we're going to do at the end of this episode called Who Said It? Alpha 60 or Thanos? <laughs> <laughs> for now, we'll go to the sign that Ivan Johnson sees entering Alphaville that says silence, logic, safety, prudence. I guess these are the four building blocks. These are the four pillars of Alphaville. Silence, logic, safety, prudence. None of these on their own are sinister. But when you, when you put the four of them together, it's ominous. It's, it's very cold. It's very, it's just, it's the, the logic part. The lo- like this, this movie made me terrified of logic because it uses logic against us it uses your own logic against you and that's the whole point yeah i mean i think it certainly makes a convincing case that logic as the defining societal principle is not a great idea yes 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 when (laughs) when ivan johnson goes into his hotel room there is okay the, the the maid asks him a few questions starts setting things up and then she says i'll put the tranquilizers in the bathroom it's very casual. This is like, this is where I was like, oh, this is Brave New World. Yeah, this is Soma. just people, Soma, oh, yeah. yeah. That was the first thought that I had. And it's such a casual thing. She treats it like, yeah, of course, you know, tranquilizers. It's not, uh, we're, 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 this is just something everybody does. When you get to your hotel room, you have tranquilizers, of course. Right. It's like and, setting a little mint on your pillow. Well, or it's like having a Bible in the drawer. Yes. Esther. Yes. Why? Was it important for there to be a Bible in every room? Can, can I talk about spoilers for the rest of the movie, I assume? I, I, absolutely. Because, <laughs> well, I'm asking because the movie did give me an answer, but I still wanted to ask you this question because it, it wasn't a good enough answer for me. Okay. So I, the first time I saw this movie, I do remember being surprised by the Bible because in this society of logic and prudence and science, I was like, oh, they, they still have religion. That's strange. And then later it's revealed that the Bible is actually a dictionary and that, that this dictionary changes pretty much every day as new words are removed from the okay list of words that people are allowed to use. That turns the usage of words into a kind of religion. So the... The Bible itself is not a literal King James Bible. No. 
It's literally okay. a dictionary. Like it's just full of words. And Natasha says that words disappear every day. Exactly. So what's happening behind the scenes, you're saying is Professor Von Braun and his assistants or Alpha 60 is is updating these Bibles and like placing them in every room or making yeah. sure they're placed in every room to yeah. update everyone's vocabulary. Right. There's. Do you remember the scene where um, there's someone who brings in room service and then he grabs the Bible out of Anna Karina's hand and then replaces it? Like that's the update uh, of the Bible. Okay. Okay. You unlocked it for me. All right. Now, okay. Now I get it. Now, th- I'm glad that I asked you because- I'm glad I could help. It's not, so I was wrong. It's not that the movie didn't give me a good enough answer. I just needed to watch it again or pay more attention because this movie is very dense with, with details like that. And, and that's wonderful. That's awesome. It's um, also really hard to comprehend a lot of things because it doesn't really adhere to the rules of continuity or the typical, like how things have to appear in space. So for example, that scene it almost, it's almost like he, it looks like he brings in the table and then leaves, but then there's a cut of him just grabbing the Bible from her hand. And then I think in like the next second, Lemmy is holding the Bible in his hand. It's very confusing about where it is and who's doing what visually. Yeah. And I think, again, I think that's definitely on purpose. Yeah. It's meant to disorient you. It's meant to give you a sense that you can't really get two feet on solid ground in Alphaville. Like there's, you'll never get a sense of of full spatial awareness or an understanding of everything that's around you because they want it that way. They want it to be that way. I also wrote down when I was watching the opening of the movie that I was just impressed with some of the camera shots where they go inside of the glass elevators or they're just tracking the elevator going up. Because in 1965, yeah, that must've been a challenge, right? That was cool. Yeah. Apparently the way they did it was that there were two glass elevators opposite each other in that hotel. And so the camera person would be in the other elevator while the scene was happening in the elevator in front of them. And so they would have to time it that they were going up and down at the same time. And it took a lot of takes to actually make that happen. Wow. But it, it, but it's effective. It really, it's a noticeable shot. It's worth the effort that they put into it. I think we get one of our first alpha 60 quotes early on in the movie. This is said, sometimes reality can be too complex to be conveyed by the spoken word. Legend remolds it into a form that can be spread all across the world. So Esther, what does this mean? (laughs) Can you read the quote again? Yeah, sometimes reality can be too complex to be conveyed by the spoken word. Legend remolds it into a form that can be spread all across the world. This is said very early on. It seems to be the movie's ethos or like it's stating its intention from from the beginning. I don't know if these are Alpha 60s words. Are these Jean-Luc Godard's words? Whose thoughts are these? I would imagine they're Alpha 60s words. I had a lot of trouble following what Alpha 60 was actually saying. And it turns out that he was actually quoting a lot of poetry, despite poetry being verboten in this world. Interesting. Yeah. Because he talks like this. Yeah. Yeah. And so slowly. And there's always something visual happening that distracts me. And I'm also reading the subtitles. So I would have to go back and be like, okay, what is this sentence actually saying? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, and and that's, 
Alpha 60 through the movie enacting its will on you and trying to to blur your mind with with all of these distracting images while it's feeding the subliminal message into your brain. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I'm sorry. I cut you off. What were you going to say? No, I'm thinking about this quote and I'm thinking about I, I really like the question of if it's Alpha 60's thoughts or Godard's thoughts, because I think on the surface, I was thinking of it as a computer's simplifying of reality, right? Of the world is complex. Don't worry about it. Logic is simple, but that's also kind of what the director does, right? Yeah. It, through, through logic, all things have a conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. But similarly, through stories and through narrative, all things have conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Be, be only because they have to, right? Right. It's a, it's a contained form. And I think Alpha 60 sees the world as a contained form, sees humanity as a contained form. And Alpha 60 is not content to just let humanity run itself or run unregulated. And the only way that it sees to possibly contain it and make it logical is to end it and specifically to have it end itself, which is terrifying. (laughs) Because that's the only natural conclusion to what they will do. Mm -hmm. The spoken word bit of this is, is interesting to me because of what you said about them calling it Nueva York. I think maybe that might be part of what Godard is saying, that sometimes reality is too complex to be translated even into other languages. When you try to translate it, some of the meaning gets lost. It's almost impossible to convey an emotion through a strong emotion through words alone. Sometimes it takes action or sometimes it takes a drastic, maybe in this case, visual accompaniment, some sort of visual aid to drive the point home. Yeah, that makes me think of the line Natasha has about the word conscience, conscience. Uh, When she says, I don't know this word, what is this word? But then later she says, I don't know this word, but I know exactly what this word means. Yeah, because she, in in much better poetry than I can uh, convey, describes words as feelings. Or she sort of relates like knowing the meaning of a word is like having a feeling. It's a very internal thing. Well, I think that's a moment of discovery for her. Yes, yes. That's also something that, interestingly enough... Alpha 60 seems to be instructing. And have you seen the movie Arrival with Amy Adams? No. Okay. It's it's one of the movies, it's one of the the really good modern sci-fi movies, sci-fi movies that I think took a lot of influences from this. It's largely about language itself. Uh, packaged as an alien movie, like a first contact arrival kind of movie. It's called Arrival. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it very much goes into language and, and us trying to understand the alien language, them trying to teach it to us and understand our language. There is a really interesting concept that, is, that they talk about in that movie about how this alien language is like reading a sentence from the beginning and the end at the same time and meeting it in the middle. Alpha 60 has a quote in this movie, and it's one of these moments where I believe they visit the Department of Semantics. They're, they're having this discovery about themselves. An isolated word can be understood, but the meaning of the whole is lost. Mm. And then it goes into numbers, and it says one can understand the concept of one, and then they think they understand the concept of two because one plus one equals two. But that requires the understanding of the word plus. Yes. 
Yes. Which, that, that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. And th- correct me if I'm wrong, that was also the point at which visually it was drawings and lists of words that had yes. all... Yeah, if you, and if you look at them, I had to pause to see this, but each of the words were written in a way that graphically represented the meaning of the word. Yeah. Absence was one, and one of the letters was missing. And so each of those words had something like that, which, again, kind of directly contradicts what he's saying, right? Yes, it does. But it also supports the the idea that reality is too complex to be conveyed by words alone. You have to have a deep understanding of mathematics itself. Math is, math is something, when you consider math as a language, I think it's a fascinating way to, to look at, at trying to understand mathematical concepts. It's almost the language of of the real world, of the natural world. Math is the way that naturally occurring shapes, angles, circles, spirals, things like that express themselves. And we just have created math as a sort of language to talk to each other about those things that we observe, right? Without numbers and concepts like plus, minus, division, exponents, just all all of these concepts that we've created, we wouldn't have a way to express these ideas to each other. And so like physics wouldn't wouldn't be a field of study, nor would biology, nor would anything. We wouldn't have any any possible fields of science. We 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 just couldn't study and share what we're studying. Yeah, I've heard the argument made, I don't remember where, that if the world was to end and restart, the Languages that we speak as humans would all be different, but mathematics would be the same. That's a really good, concise way to put that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. This movie definitely is, I don't think it's in support of cold, hard logic being the answer to everything. I think it's propping up that idea to show us how dangerous it is. I think that's what the movie is trying to teach us with showing us what a world built on that principle that that commits very stringently to that principle looks like. Would you agree or disagree with that? So I think that's a really interesting question. I think if you look at kind of the plot of the movie and the narrative, that is the story, right? It's talking exactly about how a society defined by logic and by a computer is horrifying in a lot of ways and needs to be taken down. But at the same time, I got this sense of ambivalence where it's, let me caution, doesn't really represent a better alternative. Right, right. Right? So, I mean, it's not like he's driven by emotion, but that very significant last line of the movie when, when Natasha finally says, I love you, it kind of reminds me of the ending of The Graduate where I'm like, am I supposed to feel like that's like a victory. Because- I'm glad you said that because I was I was more worried about Natasha with that ending than I was happy for either of them. Yeah, yeah. And and if you think about it, he says he loves her based on what exactly? Like, what does love mean in that case? It seems to be because she doesn't stress him out and doesn't like disagree with him in any way and doesn't try to shoot him or give him tranquilizers or get in a bath with him when secret agents are trying to kill him. I think those are the things that he (laughs) distinguishes from other women in this movie that makes him fall in love with her. Yeah. She also, (laughs) I mean, she also is played by Anna Karina, 
who you just look at her and you're like, yeah, of course he falls in love with her. Yeah, I want to I, I want to say for the record, I don't think he truly does love her. I don't think that he's good for her. I don't, I don't think that it's a good really I don't think it's going to be a good relationship for either of them, really. But right. oof. So it's, what is that saying about if we're thinking about the criticism of a society defined by logic? then what is this alternative that is being presented to us as the quote-unquote hero of the film? I'm not sure, because it's the ending of, um, and I'm going to announce spoilers for this at the beginning of the episode, but it's the ending of Tron Legacy. It's also the ending of Ex Machina. If you haven't seen Ex Machina, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I haven't seen either. Okay, okay. So I'm not going to talk about the ending of that one, but Tron Legacy, I don't think, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think you'll mind too much if I if I spoil it, but a... Tron Legacy is about going inside of a computer program. And at the end of it, one of the programs who's played by an actress comes out of the program and into our real world. And she's at that point, like a real human being. Like she is in our world breathing oxygen or you could, well, the movie leaves it on that note to let you speculate on it, right? Let's start with this question. Was Natasha a robot? Is she a robot? Are are the people in Alphaville, Alphaville robots? Or are they humans who are being conditioned by a robot? So how do you define a robot? I'm glad you asked that because that that's the question I actually should have asked you first. So, Esther, <laughs> what is a robot? We're also going to go into what is a dinosaur, just so I can get your thoughts on that. But let's let, let's start with what is a robot? Yeah, so I think, well, my opinion on what a robot is, is something that is created electronically and is not born and is defined by a code that is is programmed by. Okay. Okay. So if Keanu Reeves, when Neo was, was born in the Matrix, he was born in like a pod that basically hooked him up to become a battery for the machines, right? And he never really lived a conscious life until he was pulled out of it. So during that time, was he a robot or was he still a human being just stuck, hooked up to a machine? Yeah, I would say he was a human battery. A human battery. Okay. So, okay. So you, you draw a very distinct line between living organic humans and robots. Right. Okay. I think this movie does too. And I was asking if the people that we see in Alphaville are robots because I kind of suspected at certain points in the movie that they were androids. And to me, what an android is, is a robot that's, that's meant to imitate a human in every single way, but is not a living human, was not born, was built. I do think that the people in Alphaville were born and that they are... They have a natural. They had a natural life up to a certain point, and then they became brainwashed. That's what I took away from the movie. Yeah, I would describe them as robotic, not as okay. robots. I don't know. I kind of assumed that they had been brainwashed from the very second they were born. You know, I don't know how far back it yeah. goes. Yeah, um, that's a good question. How many generations of, of people have grown up in Alphaville? Right. I mean, I guess Von Braun was the architect of Alpha Sixty. And Natasha recalls being born in Nueva York. So presumably it's only a generation, but I, I kind of, it's hard to imagine that they would be so efficient in one generation. Yes, that's, that's a good point. It could also be that we're seeing 
just the early stages of this experiment as it's going, as it's like in the early stages of going, of becoming rampant, of, of getting out of control. It seems like there was, there was definitely a plan and a lot of people seemed to willingly buy into this utopia. I got the sense that Alphaville was sort of sold as a dream to people that it would be this perfect place where you can go and you don't have to worry about anything because the computer is going to worry about everything. Is that just like me in creating a backstory in the movie or is there like something in there that supports that? Or did you get, did you get a different idea of how Alphaville was created? Esther, how, how would you say Alphaville came to be as a town, as a city? Yeah, I think, so I would contrast, like the people in Alphaville don't seem very happy. So I would say, you know, it's not like Pleasantville or something where they're all drinking the Kool-Aid on this artificial world. They say something about the age of electricity seems to factor in a lot where it's kind of, it's it's sort of like just dedication to science and logic and illumination as the greatest good. And it seems that it's just been very effective at squelching emotion. One thing that it's, it's, preying upon is our human ambition. I I noticed there was this line, there is a natural ambition in any organization to plan its activities. I thought a lot about that when I heard that I, this is one of the moments where I like paused the movie. I wrote that down. I went back and like watched it again. And then I just like, before I pressed play, I sat and just thought about this for a while. And that's what this movie did to me at multiple points. That's why I I can't recommend this movie highly enough. It's fantastic. This is what sci-fi should do. It should make you think. It should make you a little bit existential. It should make you look at the real world that you exist in and think about how it would look to an outside eye, how our world would look to an alien and what things would be completely bizarre and weird to them. Or a robot looking at our world and thinking that it doesn't agree with the logic of of how we've put our world together, right? Yeah. And this is such an effective movie at that kind of defamiliarization because Mm. it doesn't rely on sci-fi, everything looks so cool, and look at all the CGI, it's so futuristic. It is set in present day using only real sets and real props, but they're used in a way that is slightly off kilter, so it makes you look at the real world in a new way. Yeah, there's some cool technology in this movie. Like Occasionally, they'll pick up a ceramic cup or some sort of weird little orb off of a desk and that will, they'll talk into it or they'll receive messages through it. There's, it, but it's it's weird because it's like almost future, retro futuristic. It's yeah. hard to place where that technology lands. Yeah, I I feel like that's a trope that we've seen a lot in, in films after this. I remember being blown away by Blade Runner because it looked, everything looked like it was the 80s. And I was like, oh my God, the future can also look like the past. But yeah, I think- this film really, even that communication device, it's it's an actual object that, I think it was a timer or something. Mm-hmm. Like it's a real object that existed in that time. It's just being used differently. And so it kind of defies the logic of when was this thing invented? It's just more, this is a new way of using it. Like this is an alternate reality. It really comes down to like, how how does this thing look on film and how easily does it fit in the human hand? Because those are the two most important factors with it, yeah. right? Like any communication device, it's can we convey that this is something that when you're holding it, the purpose of it is evident from a film perspective, but also like, how does it fit in our hand? Phone designers think about this every single day. 
Right? Anybody that's in technology probably thinks a lot about how does this ergonomically fit into our spaces. It's hard for a sci-fi film to get something visually right that achieves what this does, what the technology in this movie does. There's more of a horror movie, It Follows, uh, which came out a few years ago. I should get the date of when that came out. So It Follows came out in 2014, but when you're watching it, the filmmaker deliberately made had a mixture of different types of cars, different types of architecture. And there's one piece of technology that stands out in it where one of the characters has this, what looks like a seashell. If you had like a makeup compact that was shaped like a seashell, when she opens it, it has a screen. And at one point she's like reading a book off of it. And we don't know if it's a phone or some sort of handheld technological device. It could be futuristic. It could be from the past. And this is just a horror movie, but it has this little like sci-fi element to deliberately make it impossible for you to place this in a specific time period. So that way it's always scary. It's not like, oh, this was scary in 2014. The way that if you watch Halloween or some, some that's a bad example, but like some horror movies from the 70s or 80s where you're like, yeah, this would be scary back then, but it wouldn't really be this scary if you had a cell phone or if you had you know, any modern technology. If you had an alarm system in your house, it wouldn't be that scary. The technology in this movie is is amazing. Alpha 60 itself is really interesting in that my, my, what I, again, what I gathered from watching the movie once was Professor Von Braun is a person that created a machine that reaches logical conclusions and convinced enough people that we should all make our, we should all center our decision-making process around this machine, around Alpha 60, because it is infallible. It will lead us to enlightenment. Was Professor Von Braun mistaken? Did he have good intentions for humanity and Alpha 60 got out of his control? Is it like, is, is he Seymour Krellborn and Alpha 60 is Audrey too, who tricked him into churning itself, into activating itself and becoming a threat to the entire planet? Or was Von, was Von Braun evil to begin with and Alpha 60 was his plan to end humanity? So do you know who Von Braun is named after? Please tell me. Okay. So there's a guy named Werner Von Braun. He was a scientist in Nazi Germany. After the war ended, he was hired by the United States as a scientist for their space program. Fascinating. Uh, And the character of Dr. Strangelove was inspired by him. So I think- That's one of the movies I put on my list, Dr. Strangelove. 100%. Yeah, I think that kind of calls into question what is a pure motivation, right? Like, if you look at it from the perspective of a Nazi scientist, progress for the sake of progress. And, you know, if some certain people in our society need to be eliminated to make that progress happen, that's okay. I think we would say that that's evil. But in his mind, he's doing the right thing. Mm. So that's kind of where I assumed this Professor Von Braun was coming from. I didn't get the sense that he had any kind of larger motivation like it's not like he was saying I'm doing this for love but I'm gonna eliminate love you know it was really about progress and creating this the science that would benefit the world okay do you think that his version of benefiting the world was to bring everybody under heel and sort of make them much more easy to control 
by taking away their individuality. Yeah, I think so. And also one of the tenets of the society that was listed in the beginning was safety. That's something that's always used to control the population of any society. That's why the uh, the line about ambition stuck with me. There's a natural ambition in any organization to plan its activities. You know what that made me think of almost immediately is any episode of The Office where Phyllis and Angela are fighting over like being the party planning committee, like who's in charge of the party planning committee, right? Yeah. It's, it's any organization, all of its members have a drive, a, an innate human drive to plan the activities of the organization. Only some of those people are the actual leaders of the organization and get to do that. But everybody has an opinion about the way it should be run, don't they? Everybody is either on board with this leader or disappointed with what this leader is doing because it's not the way I would do things. Everyone experiences one of those two things when you're in a group. Or I guess three things. If you're the leader, then you're experiencing a third thing, which is leading the group and getting that fulfillment. Alpha 60 is very aware of this aspect of humanity and that th- that there's this, they call it a natural ambition. In, and so I think it's something, it's one of the things that it uses in its program to tap into what are what is our logic? What are the things that we think about every day that drive us to want to continue existing? What are the things that that drive us towards effort, towards towards trying anything, building structures, inventing technologies? What what is inside of human beings that makes us do that? Alpha 60 realized part of that is ambition. And the fact that it took consciousness away from us is interesting. The fact that it took the word why away from us, right? I think speaks to its very calculated equation where it figured out how to control us. And the only way to control us is what the computers in the matrix figured out, which is to give us the illusion that we're still in control. So I had a, I think, pretty contradictory interpretation of that quote, but I think there's room for both interpretations because this movie does that. I Uh, do too, and I definitely want to hear your interpretation then. Yeah, I think what I thought of it as, I thought of the organization as a colony of ants, right? Mm. Meaning they, every organization needs, what's it called? (laughs) Every organization wants a plan, wants to plan, meaning having some larger plan. And so each individual actually feels the most comfortable adhering to a plan, something that is planned for them. And so by taking away why and taking away emotion and taking away questioning, you're left with, okay, I'm just going to follow orders. And that's mm. where people are actually the most comfortable. Did this remind you of Wally at all? Yeah, it's like a the dark side of Wally. Well, Wally is the dark side of Wally, but it has a happy ending. But the beginning of Wally, and and when we find out what humanity looks like out in space on this cruise ship, it's bleak. To me, in my opinion, it is yeah. bleak. It's a very cynical but honest prediction of what the world is going to look like. I think yeah. Wally is extremely poignant, and I think Pixar saw Wall uh, saw <laughs> before making Wally. Yeah, I love Wally, but I think. In that movie, the premise is that people are willing to let go of being involved in their world because entertainment takes away their free will. Whereas this, I, it feel, I mean, there is, you know, everybody's on tranquilizers, but 
it's or alcohol just- or unregulated hedonism. It's let's keep you sedated. Let's keep you, we'll keep all of your, your desires satiated. So you're just in a sedated state constantly. And when you have these moments of sobriety, it's just enough to get you back into your, it's like addiction. They're really just yeah. feeding addiction. Yeah. I, it makes me definitely think about some of the arguments about Nazis in Germany, where it's like, okay, okay. they, you know, they were just following orders. They became automatons. How do, how did people get to that point? Mm. And ultimately people like following orders. Yes. Yes, they do. Loki has a lot to say about that in <laughs> the first Avengers movie. It talks about the illusion of choice. And let me find that quote because it's really, it's, it's like really on the nose with what this movie is saying too. Loki, kneel before me. I said, kneel. Is this not simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy and a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. Uh, and then an old German man stands up and says, not to men like you. And he says, there are no men like me. And then the German guy has the best comeback ever when he says, there are always men like you. <laughs> so the illusion of choice, according to Alpha 60, according to Loki as well, is what drives us mad. It, what, it's what leads to our anxieties. It's what leads to our feeling of worthlessness when we don't achieve our our lofty, ambitious goals and dreams that we build for ourselves in our simple, weird, stupid human brains, right? From Alpha 60's perspective, we are the greatest threat to ourselves. Only by taking away our free will do we have any sort of chance of doing anything useful, I guess. I, I think Alpha 60 is a pragmatist and wants us to either produce, do something useful or just disappear and get out of the way. Does Alpha 60 ever express an opinion about humans? Yes. Like humans in general or like how he feels about humans. Yes. Okay. Yes, Do you have does. a quote for that? Because you I have like a couple. Okay. I have a couple. Yeah. So one, one that I didn't understand the full meaning of at first until I really, until Alpha 60 revealed its intentions. And it's the line, I think Natasha also says it. There's a lot of these lines in there, you know, one character says, and then it's like sort of a, a thing, like, I'm fine, thanks, don't mention it. And it's just like a colloquialism. No one lives in the past. No one will be alive in the future. What's your interpretation of that line? It's the present, right? Every moment is mm-hmm. the present. We don't worry about the past. We don't worry about the future. It's actually kind yeah. of zen, but twisted on its head. Yeah, because no one no one in the past is, is living in the past. They are all not in the past anymore right. or currently dead. Well, so and also... No one lives in the past. If you don't remember, if you don't think about the past, and if you don't plan or worry about the future and you're really just in the present moment, you are kind of disoriented. You can't really have a lot of emotions about things. Right. But I think the alpha, I think this computer program would argue you shouldn't worry about the future. You shouldn't sure. think about the past. You have a task to do right now. You have some computation that needs to be carried out. Do that. Then you'll have another one. Or you won't. Who knows? Don't worry about that. Because the other part of this, no one will be alive in the future. Worded exactly the way it's worded. No one will be alive in the future. It's prophetic. It's a threat. 
it's the computer saying, we're going to kill you all anyway, or you're all going to, you're all going to die out in your organic, weak, useless bodies before machines do. So no one will be alive in the future. Stop worrying about it. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I actually, that's why I'm, I'm questioning whether he really cares about humans. Cause it almost, it's not like the evil robot that's trying to take down humans. It seems more like pure logic again, right? It's, well, this is the natural conclusion of what has to happen. So the natural, the natural conclusion that I think Alpha 60 makes is in this quote that we see towards the end of the movie when Ivan is escaping. A simple instruction is usually not enough to bring about the execution of a task by Alpha 60. Do not believe it is I that initiates this destruction nor the scientists who have embraced my plan. Ordinary men are not worthy of the position they hold in the world. When we analyze their past, we are automatically led to this conclusion. Therefore, they should be destroyed. That is, they should be transformed. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere in the movie, it's stated that computers created problems beyond the grasp of the human mind. And that's sort of how Alphaville came into being. A computer or an algorithm convinced us of these problems that didn't really exist that were so such big problems, or what they convinced us was that these were such big problems that we can't even comprehend them, but we trust this computer to solve them for us. Right. These made up problems in the first place. Well, it's like I mean, politics. <laughs> <laughs> made up problems, but also just computationally impossible to comprehend problems. Right. I mean, like in our world today, think about nobody knows how their phone works. We just use it. Yes. Yeah. We have more savvy users than builders. Right. More savvy end users than than programmers, for, for example. And actually, so programmer, that's an interesting term in general, especially in this world where we have we see people like Professor Von Braun and his assistants. And we see some of those assistants in different forms. For example, when they execute people. Esther, what is the method of execution in Alpha? Oh my God, is it horrifying. So they take these people. Well, there's two actually. We see one and then we hear one described. So the first one is they take them out into a pool and then someone shoots them. He falls into the pool and then a group of lovely synchronized diver swimmers jump into the pool converge on him and just stab him violently yeah death by synchronized swimmers (laughs) and it's the most beautiful looking thing it is and and then there's a whole execution squad just standing on the sidelines watching you know it's like a show that no one really gets any pleasure out of it's just the thing that happens yes no one was like applauding no one was cheering it was almost like they didn't want to they didn't even want to be watching it like it was a public execution that everyone's embarrassed to be there Every, nobody is getting pleasure out of this though it's not right. like, the hang, like the hanging in the town square we got this criminal and we're all gonna like delight in in them dying it was more of like the shirley jackson the lottery kind of thing where it's just like oh this is how it is yeah yeah it right. was almost like they were like checking in for their weekly meeting that they were yes. like, this is pointless. But I, I mean, th- I, I guess we need to have these meetings. It's important. Yeah. But like, I'm bored. Yeah. I regret that. I didn't really write down like what the accused were shouting in their, in their final moments. I'm sure that it was extremely important, but I ran out of space on the page. <laughs> did you, did any of it stand out to you? Yeah. I think the 
I don't remember the exact quote, but I think the gist of it was something like you can never stop us or like we'll always mm. or something like that. I don't I don't know if I'm making that up. Something like that. You mentioned yeah. that there's this paranoia and a lot, you know, a lot of this for, is from 1965, right, right? The when was the Cuban Missile Crisis? It was, was 1960 or six, six, 50s? 62. OK, So, I mean, definitely Alpha 60 is preying on a lot of our fear, our paranoia. This is where a lot of the references to Dr. Strangelove or or parallels or similarities to Dr. Strangelove come in. There's a conversation when uh, there's there's this doctor that to me on first glance, I wrote down Adam Driver is now interviewing Walter White. It was just this like very Dr. Scientist looking guy. And he introduces these other two scientists, Professor Jekyll and Professor. And they they talk about Jekyll and Heckle. Jekyll and Heckle. Thank you. Yes. Professor Jekyll and Professor Heckle. And they, they had apparently predicted that other countries might eventually invade. So we're planning to invade them uh, as a preemptive measure to prevent that from happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Again, creating problems beyond the grasp of the human mind so that we can solve those problems that we created. So, <laughs> so it's interesting that they take away the word why. At some point, Ivan asks Henry, who's this person that he seems to recognize, and they seem to have some sort of history. Henry is, is going mad. Henry is definitely in a manic state. And at one point, Ivan asks him a question about why he's doing something. And Henry says, what does why mean? That's another one of these lines in this movie that just stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, oh man, what does a world without the word why look like? First of all, what does being a parent in that world look like? (laughs) Seems like you have a lot less stress. I mean, if you think about, not to get too political, but I feel like a lot of the issues we have currently is that we live in a world where people are way more likely to say because than to ask why. Yeah. Did Natasha's moment of clarity when she first says why, did that stand out to you for any reason? Yeah, I couldn't remember if that was actually her first time saying it. I presume it was. But the fact that it just kind of slipped out without, like she seemed genuinely couldn't remember that she had just said it 20 seconds ago. I rewound it and I wrote down, and she might have said it before this point, but I wrote down that she said, why are you being unkind to me? Mm. And I I think Ivan was probably like teasing her about something, but um, that's where she first said it. And then moments later was obsessed with the fact that Ivan wouldn't tell her when she said it. Again, Ivan's kind of terrible, very much gaslights her. But she's like asking him, you know, when when did I say it? He pointed out that she said the word why, basically to hold it against her. And she's trying to get out of him. When did I say it? When did I say it? And she's really obsessed with trying to figure this out because it, it's very important to her. It's a moment of awakening for her. It's a moment of self-discovery for her, especially because she so casually says it without even, it just come. it rolls off the tongue. Do you think that that is the first time she actually says it or just the first time she's aware of saying it? I assume it's the first time she says it because it feels like a weighty moment. And I think there's, it's also tinged with fear of, oh God, like, how could I have said, which is, it's such a contradictory thing because it's, you know, you're not supposed to say it. So you have to know the word in order to know not to say it, uh, yeah. which is very, you know, 1984 double speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good comparison. That yeah. makes a lot of, yeah. They describe her also, I think Ivan describes her as the pretty sphinx. Actually, she might be described that way in a title card. To be honest, I couldn't, so much of this movie, so many of the details sort of blend together. I don't know if this was a subtitle. I don't know if this was something somebody said, or if this was something described by Alpha 60, but. I think it might be both. I I do, I think I do remember him calling her that though. And part of that is because she has this habit, I noticed throughout the movie, where she'll shake her head 
back and forth, like no, while saying the word we, while saying yes. Yeah. There's at one point, there's literally a diagram of that. I didn't understand the diagram, but it shows that happening in a diagram that's posted on the wall, maybe in the department of semantics, but, but it's one of those bizarre details that I couldn't comprehend. And I don't think the movie was allowing me to either on purpose. I, yeah, I totally found it fascinating also, and I don't have a, an answer for it, but it, I mean, it does add to the like contradictory nature of words, Mm. you know, of, I both know this thing and I can't know this thing. Yes means no, no means yes. Everything is upside down. And it definitely adds to that. Yeah. And so Henry, Henry, one of his last things that he says is conscience, make Alpha 60 destroy itself. He's trying to like resist whatever's happening to him, resist Alpha 60's control over him and the rest of Alphaville. And he knows that the only way of doing that is to achieve consciousness. And what's interesting too, you pointed this out earlier that that Natasha talks about discovering the word le conscience, conscience, Mm -hmm. not consciousness, but conscience. Yep. Do you think that that is an important distinction? Speaking of semantics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I that's a really good point. I think the two have to be inextricably linked. Con- consciousness is conscience. Yeah. Or vice the, the, the distinction in my mind is conscience is often referred to as a moral thing, right? Like, don't you have a conscience? Doesn't your conscience nag at you? Like, if you do something bad, it's your conscience that catches up with you, right? Like, there's like a lot of these like colloquial phrases that have to do with your conscience being something that makes you feel guilty or gives you a sense of right and wrong. To me, consciousness is just being alive and aware and reacting to stimuli. (laughs) Yes, but I would say that in order to have a conscience, you Mm -hmm. have to be conscious. Yes. It's like the idea of being woke. You finally kind of wake up to the reality of something and then you can, only then can you really act on it. Yeah, so Alpha Alpha 60 wants humans to have consciousness, but not have a conscience. It does not want us to philosophize on what is right, what is wrong. It, it, it has already made those decision for, decisions for us. We're not meant to sit around and have philosophical debates over morality right. a, a, in, in Alpha 60's world, right? That's a distraction, from I don't know what the end goal is. I don't know what it's. I don't know what it wants to build. I only know what Alpha Sixty wants to destroy, and it wants to destroy us. <laughs> so that's the thing: is like, does it actually understand even what a conscience is? Because in order to want to destroy it, you have to understand it. Yes, I think so. And I, Esther, I think it is time for a game <laughs> called "This Is Robots versus Dinosaurs." Favorite games, America's number one game show, Thanos or Alpha 60. So I'm going to read a few quotes to you, Esther. Okay. And I, <laughs> I, I need you to tell me who said it, Thanos or Alpha 60. Are you aware of, of who Thanos is? Yes, I am aware. All right, for yeah. our listeners, can you, can you tell us uh, who, who's Thanos? Sure. Thanos is the villain in the super megaverse of Marvel movies who believed who was trying to eliminate half the world's population because he believed that all of the world's ills could be solved by fewer people. So he thought that by destroying half the population, he was actually doing the most good for humanity, for the world. All right, so Esther, who said it? Thanos or Alpha 60? I am inevitable. 
Alpha 60? Thanos. <laughs> it is not logical. Oh God, this is so fun. <laughs> it is not logical to prevent superior beings from invading other galaxies. Say that again. It is not logical to prevent superior beings from invading other galaxies. I think that's Alpha 60. That one's Alpha 60. Okay. The present is terrifying because it is irreversible. The present is terrifying because it is irreversible. Thanos? Alpha 60. I will shred this universe down to its last atom, and then with the stones you've collected for me, create a new one teeming with life that knows not what it has lost, but only what it has been given, a grateful universe. That's Thanos. That's Thanos, yeah. Because of the stones. <laughs> yeah. What is the privilege of the dead? Alpha 60. Alpha 60. And the answer is to die no more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My calculations will see that failure is impossible. Alpha 60? Alpha 60. Okay. These are hard. Those who have not been born do not cry and have no regrets. I think that's famous. That's no. up 60. <laughs> this is a great game. <laughs> I know what it's like to lose, to feel so desperately that you're right, yet to fail nonetheless. I ask you, to what end? Dread it. Run from it. Destiny arrives all the same. And now it's here. Or should I say, I am. That's Thanos. That's Thanos. Yeah. yeah. I think the distinction I'm making between the two is that Thanos is way more willing to, like, center himself mm. as the, the thing. Okay. Okay. Unfortunately for us, the world is real. And unfortunately for me, I am me. See, that sounds like a Thanos quote, but... But I think I remember it from Alpha 60. <laughs> it's Alpha 60. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Do you accept our proposition? Answer silently, yes or no. Alpha 60? Alpha 60. <laughs> I have two more. Just two more. Too many mouths. Drum roll or something. Yeah. <laughs> Too many mouths, not enough to go around. And when we faced extinction, I offered a solution. That's Thanos. That's Thanos. And then finally, fun isn't something one considers when balancing the universe. Thanos. Thanos. So, well, uh, Esther, thank you for playing Thanos or Alpha 60. Judges, why don't you tell her what she's won? Ding, 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 ding. Esther, you have won. You've won one of the Infinity Stones of your choice. Which one do you want? The Reality Stone, obviously. How come? Because then I can control reality. Is it because reality is too complex to be conveyed by the spoken word, so it can only be conveyed using the Reality Stone? Yes. <laughs> that is the answer. Nice. Okay, Esther, just so we get this question out of the way, there are no dinosaurs that appear in this movie, but <laughs> but but I want to know just what your definition, just like your definition of a robot, I want to know what is your definition of a dinosaur? Is this what I think is the best scientific answer or just what I conceptualize as a dinosaur in my head? Yeah, the second one. Another way I like to ask this question is, 
when you close your eyes and picture a dinosaur or when somebody offhand says something about dinosaur and you have a mental image, where does that mental image come from? Is it a cartoon dinosaur? Is it something like a sketch that you've seen in a textbook or a, a, a fossil that you've seen in a museum? What's your, yeah, yeah so what comes to mind? It's an amalgamation of the long necks in Land Before Time, the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, and the it's the T-Rex in the natural museum history the museum of natural history mm-hmm. uh, so it's like a hybrid of those things like they were doing in jurassic park in jurassic world or they were making hybrid dinosaurs yes <laughs> or yeah. it's like it's like a cartoon <laughs> long neck next to a skeleton of a t- t-rex like walking in sync together <laughs> okay awesome but awesome. yeah they're okay. green they're big they're lizardy. They're I love that they're clever. green. I love that green is one of yeah, them. Yeah, they're specifically adjectives. green. Yeah. And they're clever, but not able to communicate with humans. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. What do you think Alpha 60 would... Do you think dinosaur is one of the words that Alpha 60 would be concerned about removing or adding to the Bible? Well, the past doesn't exist. Good point. So I don't know if it would be... Like, I'm curious... Like, they must not study history in this world. Would it need to be removed from the Bible, is what I'm thinking of. Hmm. But then there is something about the concept of a... Like, you know how when we say, like, oh, that person is such a dinosaur. Yes. Uh, Yes. I love this. Meaning, like, outdated. Yep. Um, A car is often referred to. Yeah. An old car. Yeah. Or, like, or even a computer. Mm. Like, that's... So I, when I think of technology and the progress of technology, it's often like, oh yeah, the last thing went extinct. Yep. It's extinct and obsolete are almost interchangeable the way that we use them in, yes. in language. So, Louis, can I ask you a question? Of course. Are robots and dinosaurs just the same thing on opposite ends of the spectrum? Yes. I'm glad you asked me this question because this is this is one of the things that when I started this podcast, I kind of just knew that I was onto something by comparing robots and dinosaurs, by exploring sci-fi movies where the filmmaker was obsessed with one or both of those things. One of the things I'm discovering is that our fascination, or at least my fascination, with robots and dinosaurs, and I think some of my listeners feel this way. I think a lot, I, I hope so, because uh, <laughs> if so, you found the right podcast. Thinking about either of those concepts places you in your present. There's a quote, there's something that paleontologist and friend of the show, Liza Peterson, told me that we are closer in the timeline to the Tyrannosaurus Rex than the Tyrannosaurus Rex is to the Triceratops or Mm. like some other dinosaur that lived so many millions of years far away from it. Either way, however many years ago it was, dinosaurs are this thing, this this thing that doesn't look like anything that exists on on our planet currently. It's too big for us to exist next to it. It's too dangerous. It's too alpha. It's too much of a dominant species for us to also coexist with it. Mm -hmm. We seem to feel the same way about robots, that they are going to take over for for us or take control from us. Either way, they're going to, the way that we inhabit and inherited the planet from dinosaurs, robots are going to inherit the planet from us. So we are right in the middle of robots and dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. And we're the ones 
we're the ones we're we're unique in the sense that we live in a time period where paleontology is a very very young field of science we only know about these colossal things that lived on our planet so long ago because we live in a technologically advanced enough age that we can dig them up, we can analyze them, and we can come to conclusions about what they are, what they looked like, how they lived. We also live in a point in the timeline, which this is just a miracle that we live in this point, where we can also speculate on what robots, what futuristic things will look like. And currently, we're, all, we're, we're catching up to a lot of the sci-fi of my youth that speculated on like what robots, what technology would look like. Some of it is reality right now, <laughs> and yeah. it's, it just blows my mind. I'm I'm gonna play contrarian a little bit because that's how Please I do. do. Please do. Because you said it's a miracle that we live in this time. And I I feel like it's actually I think both dinosaurs and robots represent this very human obsession with the past and the future, and specifically with our non-existence, right? Just the like I feel like the fascination with dinosaurs is these giant creatures dominated this planet we call home. We weren't there for it. We can never know what happened. What is that? And then robots, you know, so often they're either the great hope or the great threat of, well, we're going to die someday. There are these things that outlive us. What is that world? And I, I think the reason that science is interested in dinosaurs is because we're obsessed with the past. And that's the reason science is obsessed with robots is because we're obsessed with progressing into the future. Yes. Yeah, it's, def- it's an obsession in both yeah. directions. I agree with that totally. It puts things in perspective in the sense that lo- looking in either direction kind of gives you a sense of like how, how small our blip in the timeline of the whole entire universe actually is, okay. right? Like our existence as cultured humans with art, music, fields of science, things that we've developed, it's such a small amount of time compared to the enormity of everything that has come before and the enormity of what we're predicting time will look like or reality will look like when we're no longer a part of reality. And yeah. in either in either way, science fiction always seems to be obsessed with the, the dread of either extinction or obliteration or obsoletion. Mm-hmm. Is obsolescence a word? Obsoles- Becoming obsolete. <laughs> obsolescence. Obsolescence. Thank you. Thank you. That's why. That's why you're on the podcast to writer. Because <laughs> we both have an English degree. Yours means a lot more, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Esther. I want to ask you: Is there anything, any like trivia, anything about this movie? that you got like in your back pocket, some like juicy little tidbit or something, something that you think I don't know about this movie? I have a couple things. Okay. So I, I don't know what you know and what you've researched, obviously, but something that I thought was really interesting is that the voice for Alpha 60 is actually a human who had a voice box because he had throat cancer. Thank you for unlocking that for me. That was, yes, that's fantastic. such a disorienting effect because you can hear him breathe the whole time. Yes. I wrote down, it sounds like inward singing, like on the Jack Black, on the uh, Tenacious D album. (laughs) If you're not familiar with it, you won't get the reference, but (laughs) it it sounds like somebody burping while they're talking with somebody uncomfortably breathing in a closet right next to them while they're recording is, is what it sounded like to me. 
<laughs> that is very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's disturbing and it's like hard to listen to, but it also weirdly feels so human because you feel that struggle for each word. The fact that you hear the inhales and exhales yeah. is so off-putting because we know it's supposed to be a robot voice. It's, it, it's general grievous. Alpha 60 is general grievous. I don't quite get the reference, so you're going to have to explain it to me. General Grievous is a villain in Star Wars. <laughs> he's, he's in the prequels. And he is a robot that, for whatever reason, coughs and sputters when he's talking. He occasionally will like be in the middle of his villain speech and he'll be like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and just cough into his metal robotic hand. So there's, there is an explanation for it. For all my nerds out there who are like screaming at their speakers, I know that he was a Kalish warrior. Count Dooku sabotaged his, his spaceship and he exploded and the only parts of his body that were recoverable happened to be his brains, eyes, and lungs. And that's why he has respiration, uh, respiratory issues in his robot body. So Good to know. Yes. So it's interesting that Alpha 60 is, is inspiration for General Grievous because of the way the way Alpha 60 talks, it's it is bizarre that it doesn't it's not the stereotypical I am a robot mm-hmm. sounding like it's coming out of an electronic MIDI speaker or something. It, it is very much a recognizably human voice that is breathing while talking. Yep. And it's also, unless, you know, you have a lot of experience with voice boxes, it's a very difficult sound to place. It's unlike anything I've ever heard. Yeah. You know, I've never heard a robot that sounds like that. Yeah. When you think of what a robot looks like, is there is there also like what a robot sounds like in your head? And is it is it Alpha 60 or is there another like another iconic robot voice or sound? No, I, that's why I feel like I don't think of Alpha 60's voice as a robot. When okay. I watch the movie, I picture an old man with a voice box speaking, even though I know he's a robot. Do you think it's meant to be Von Braun? Do you think Von Braun recorded his voice? No, no. no. I think I, I think he's a robot. I don't think, like, I, I'm not questioning that aspect of it. It's just that because I know that piece of trivia, I just experience it differently. Mm-hmm. Okay. So typically, when I think of a robot voice, I think of Wally or her, Scarlett Johansson. Like, that very kind of soothing, feminine voice. Okay. So, like or like that. modulated in some way. Yeah. Like welcome to space. Okay. That's something, the way that you did that just now, which was very good, very good robot voice. Uh, what it, what stands out to me when I hear it is it sounds like what real robots are actually kind of like the way that they actually kind of talk right now, which is that some voice actor recorded a catalog of words and phrases and some of them go together and some of them kind of don't. So you get the playback of a robot stringing sentences together. Usually is depicted as stilted in some way certain words sound like they were pre-recorded but part of a different sentence and they're just inserted cut and pasted into this sentence yeah yeah that is not what alpha 60 sounds like alpha 60 sounds like they're reading off of a page yeah in full sentences yeah yeah it's fascinating the robot voice that i think i hear all the time is sound wave from the transformers it's it's a very like computer sound voice it's kind of like if you have the the alex voice on your imac on on your like apple computer 
the like very early version of what Siri does now, which is like speak the text on your screen. When when the old original like Max first rolled that out, you can still choose this voice in your settings if you want to, to like just to experience it. Um, but that's kind of like the iconic to me robot voice, not only stilted or sounding like is pre- it like robot voice. Yeah. Emotionless. Emotionless is is one of the words I would use to describe it. So my question was, but, and you definitely did answer this categorically. Did Von Braun record himself saying a catalog of words and phrases, or did he somehow program enough of the programming of Alpha 60 to, it has its own unique voice and that's, this is the result of it. That's what we're hearing. Huh. Weirdly, I, I literally never thought about how Alpha 60 came into existence. I think like the citizens of Alphaville, I just assume that it existed and I did not think about its past or its future. I have an alternate <laughs> theory. I have an alternate theory for how it exists. You do? Yeah, that it's an alien from a from a nearby galaxy. Oh, interesting. Like it actually infiltrated yeah. this galaxy. <laughs> 100%, yep. And so, um, I mean, it could be. There's nothing to yeah. talk about that. Well, what made me think of that was my comparison that I brief, I like vaguely made earlier to Little Shop of Horrors, right? There was a total eclipse of the sun and then Seymour saw this, this cutting of a plant that he'd never seen at this plant shop before and he buys it. It won't grow until he feeds it blood. What it represents in the movie is Seymour, it, it plays on his ambition, right? It plays on his desire to like have a better life, to have good things for himself so he can provide for Audrey who's in love with. So it tempts him. It preys on temptation and his human desires, right? And in the end, its goal all along, because it's this alien being from space, its goal all along was to propagate itself and spread itself and make more Audrey's all over the world so that they take over the planet. And in the original ending of it, that's that's how it ends. It doesn't have like the happy movie ending that we get with the Rick Moranis version. So what if Alpha 60 is like an Audrey 2? It's Audrey 60. And, <laughs> <laughs> right? Alpha, A, Audrey. <laughs> Man, I have like a whole, like I have pins and yarn connecting different yeah. points. Same. Yeah, it, yeah. I do think the movie gives us just enough of the origin of Alpha 60 with Professor Von Braun and just enough to speculate as well. Little enough to speculate and just enough to get us started speculating. Yeah, I think I assumed it was created by a team of scientists. I didn't think about where its voice came from, though if you suggested to me that it was recorded, my instinctual reaction would be that that's not possible. How is that possible? Mm. Because it's so, I don't know, it's so human in its quality. I almost thought of it as just a sentient robot and didn't question it. Interesting. (laughs) But but this is a movie with a a lot of interpretations. Yeah. You said you had a couple other things that you know that I don't I think I mentioned most of them. There is a, a reference to Humphrey Bogart that I love because Godard uses in, in his first movie, Breathless, where he does a thing where with his thumb, he slides it across his lip, which is a thing Humphrey Bogart did a lot. Interesting. There is a point where the John Hamm, Walter White, Ivan, just start, like, he just becomes this action movie, quip, like, quip one-liner, James Bond action star. There's a point where he like gets driven somewhere 
by who at this point is, is one of the people in Alphaville. It's just like a mindless drone. And he says, wait here. And then as he's getting out of the car, he shoots the guy twice and says, now I know you'll keep your word. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a part where he's like getting into a, a scuffle with a dude and he goes, ever notice journalist starts with J like justice. <laughs> I, I love that line, but what does that mean? That's yeah, something not, Judge, Judge Dredd like, would say that. Sylvester Stallone would say yeah, that before punching a dude in the face. It's yeah. And it's so that comes from. I mean, it's definitely a reference to his other, it's a continuation of that character, right? Like this pulpy detective character with like quippy lines. What did uh, you say the name of it was? Let me caution. His yeah. real name is a character that appeared in multiple films. And that's exactly the type of character he is. Yep. I sort of, I wrote down, this is a list of the movies that I was like, as I was watching this movie that I wrote down that clearly were Wait, influenced. I'm, I had something else to say about Bogart. Hi, oh, there, was a, there was a moment when he's reading The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. And the film version starred Bogart and Bacall. Just a little... Definitely. Yeah, that's, I think that is, Humphrey Bogart is probably the visual image that my mind was trying to drive towards when I landed on Walter White and Don Draper. Yeah. So, (laughs) because they are clearly like inspired by the man archetype of Humphrey Bogart. With the cigarette hanging off his lip. Yeah. The hat, the trench coat with a gun in in whichever pocket. So this movie definitely was a reflection of a lot of the pop culture at the time, but also inspired a lot of movies. I I started writing down movies. I definitely didn't write down all of them because I ran out of space and like I would would be writing the entire time and not watching the movie. But this movie reminded me so much of Tron Legacy, Brave New World, every version of it, the book and, and the movie. Um, the Expanse, which is a book series and a, and a show on Amazon, very much. Nah, I, I can't go into any of these individually. So, Arrival, uh, Westworld, for very obvious reasons. Little Shop of Horrors, Equilibrium, The Matrix, Doctor Strangelove, The Terminator, and then also the video game Fallout, and also another video game, Grand Theft Auto. There's a couple of shots in this movie where they have this bird's eye view cam of cars chasing each other. And it looks straight out of the Grand Theft, the early Grand Theft Auto games. And I also wrote down M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, one of my favorite sci-fi movies. (laughs) So did you also have like sort of a a soft list of like movies? Was any like big one that really stood out? Yeah. I would say the biggest ones for me were 1984 Blade Runner and actually, 2001: A Space Odyssey, too. I mean, oh, okay, taking over, yeah, yeah. and and Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, yeah, We're a robot that in in 2001, the robot's goal is to protect the people that it's in charge of, right? And or that's what it's built for is to protect them. But something convinces it that the best way to protect them is basically to end them. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's crazy and very terrifying because most of our efforts into robotics are to build things to help us or to protect us in some way. And I don't know, I think we've seen we've seen this movie so many times. We know how it ends. I mean, it's it's Frankenstein. Like that is the mm. the grandmother of all sci-fi is we create this thing we can't control it. It's going to kill us. Frankenstein is a very poignant. Yeah, very very good comparison. 
Esther, do you have any more thoughts about Alphaville before I move on to my final two bonus questions? So I never mentioned the other way that people in Alphaville execute the the people who can't conform to their standards. Oh, there was a second method of execution? The second one that they describe, they don't actually show it. What they show is the seats of a movie theater tilting up and down. And the way that they describe it is that they file people into a cinema and while they're there, oh, I forget exactly, shoot. Basically, they just execute everyone while they're staring at the screen. And I was like, whoa, gas chambers, but also cinema. Right. And I think that parallel between the Holocaust and those automatons is juxtaposed against the atomic bomb which at mm. the end of the movie, the way that they describe an atomic bomb going off and all these people acting very strangely, that also suggests that the people are somehow mind connected with the robot because when it dies, they all go haywire. Yeah, so it's that's why I'm saying I don't know that it's just a straight criticism of this society that has conformed to these standards because the thing that takes it out is an atomic bomb of a very individualistic society which is America, that doesn't seem to offer like a more hopeful vision of how a society operates. Do you think the the, the thing in the, the detail with executing people in the cinema while their like eyes are glued to the screen, is that maybe Godard's way of messing with the audience for a moment? I mean, that's certain, a sense of humor. Because it makes me think of the, in Scream 2, kind of opens with a murder inside of a movie theater and it's it's supposed to put you in that, you know, if you're watching in the theater, now you're like, oh gosh, this could happen to me right now. It's also weirdly like an Amelie when she talks about her favorite thing to do in movie theaters is to look around and look at other people's faces. And then immediately your impulse is to look around and look at other people's faces. Yeah. 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 Good point. Good point. (laughs) Okay. So I loved this movie. I'm very glad that you picked it. I'm glad that you uh, brought it to my attention. Thank you very much. Is this movie a plus one or minus one? for representation of robots. <laughs> so how are we defining representation? How are okay. you defining? I would say I would say it's a plus one because it's because that voice box thing is so unique and cool and it is quite it's a it's a formidable opponent, right? It's not like a lame robot. It's not a Roomba, but it's not you know, it's not like positive representation for robots. It's not a robot you'd want to be friends with. No, it's not. It's not like the robot biopic where he's a hero of the story and you're like, oh man, robots are so amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, But you respect it. It sounds like you respect the robot. I do. It makes a lot of good points, actually. And you respect, and a lot people say that about Thanos. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, I think you say that about Thanos. I, 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 you know, I may have shared a meme or two that, that with the hashtag Thanos had a point, but, <laughs> but I'll, I do want to state for the record that I don't support uh, <laughs> the, the, the instantaneous disappearance and murder of half of the population of the entire galaxy, universe, half the population of the entire universe. I, if I had the Infinity Gauntlet, I would go with the obvious answer, which is double the resources instead of having the population. But hey, that's not, we're not here to debate Thanos' intentions, <laughs> just Alpha 60s. And I think that, I think that we can conclude that whether Alpha 60 came from space or was built by a committee 
of scientists who thought that they had the best intentions in mind. Either way, it proves humanity is on a path to destroy itself one way or another. Either we're going to destroy each other through war or we're going to literally engineer the machine, the device that brings about our own destruction. Yes, or, yeah. or pollute the world so badly that we can't live it anymore. And then, we, then that leads to the beginning of WALL-E. Yeah. Yeah. So, Esther, two bonus questions for you. This section of Robots versus Dinosaurs is called, What's Your Snack? What's your snack? My snack, when I go to the movies in real life, which I miss very much. My special treat is this the blue slushy. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Love do you one. ever do you ever mix it with the red or with the Coke slushy? I I so in the fancy ones where there's like all different flavors, I will sometimes mix. But I think the blue slushy is a classic. I don't let myself have it every time I go to the movies, but when I'm really feeling the blue slushy, I'll have the blue slushy. Okay. Let me ask my question about mixing it this way, because I think this is this, since we're talking a lot about free will, <laughs> you know, sometimes you go to a movie theater and they give you the cup and they point to the drink dispenser, but sometimes they give you the drink, right? If you were, if you wanted the mixed flavor slushy, yeah. but you had to ask them to do it versus them giving you the cup and you doing it yourself, does that factor into your decision Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah. that's what I was saying about like the fancy machines where you can control and right. exactly like how much of each and everything, you know, right. then I do it. If I have to ask them to do it, I'm, it's never going to happen. Yep. I think that's interesting because I'm the same way. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I shouldn't be embarrassed to ask someone to do it. I'm already asking right. them to pour the icy yeah, into the cup. But it just but. feels like one more thing. And also if they don't do it right, then you're going to blame them, which I don't want to yeah. feel like that about a random person who's just doing something you ask them to do. Yeah, it do, it does make me feel like I'm that person at Starbucks who like my my now I have this complicated order and like I'm I'm making this person who's probably underpaid, you know, for as hard as they work, I'm making them do more and like I, yeah, I do I do kind of feel bad about that. So, I don't I don't ask. I but if I'm given the opportunity to do it myself, usually I mix the Coke with the cherry slushy. Um that's your movie theater snack. When you're at home, to do you still have an impulse to snack? Do you pop popcorn for yourself when you're going to watch a movie at home? Sometimes I'll make popcorn or I like to eat fruit when I'm watching movies a lot. Grapes or watermelon or blackberries are you my go-tos. That's interesting because that used to be a snack that was sold in movie theaters. Fresh fruit. Really? And yeah, the reason that popcorn is the enduring popular movie snack is because everything else was... Popcorn is just kind of like the perfect storm of how well preserved it can it can be. The time between when you pop it and serve it to somebody is well, yeah, that's not really like one of the strongest points of it because it gets stale. It gets stale <laughs> after too long, but it does it does have like enough of a shelf life that you can sit with it for two hours and like even when it's not hot anymore, it's it's there and you don't have to worry about cleaning it up as much afterwards as like if you ate a peach in right. a movie theater. Yeah. Now you have to deal with the middle of the peach, right? Or if you eat an orange, now you have to deal with yeah. the orange rinds and everything else. Uh, I would the, love to go to a movie theater where they serve fruit, though. That sounds mm. so delicious. Yeah, well, they definitely used to serve it in, like, live theater, and that's why people would throw tomatoes uh, <laughs> performances they didn't like. So I can imagine a movie theater manager not wanting to clean that's fruit fair. rinds and, and juice and jam out of the carpets. <laughs> 
As for my final bonus question, if we were to replace any of the any two characters in Alphaville with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, which two characters would you replace and would that improve the movie in any way? First of all, I love this question so much. And because I'm a fan of the show, I've been obsessing over this question. Yes. Um, I would say it would make the movie very different. I would cast Whoopi Goldberg as Lemmy Caution. I, I feel like she has enough gravitas to pull it off. Oh, yeah. And like, it, it kind of parallel because Lemmy Caution was this sort of fluffy, pulp, noir character. And then in this movie, he's this hardened, wizened, rough-looking like he's seen some shit and Whoopi's been battling it out with Megan McCain on The View for so long that now <laughs> she's this hardened detective. <laughs> I can see that for her. Oh, um, yeah. she, would pull, she would pull off that trench coat and top oh, yeah. hat look yeah. real good. And that first moment when he walks into the hotel and someone tries to take his suitcase and he just smacks him away. Come on, Whoopi. I, I can see that. Yep. Where are we putting DeVito? DeVito, I would cast as Natasha Von Braun. Um, <laughs> I would put the, the wig on him with the blunt bangs and the log. Can you imagine that like star shot when she walks into frame? <laughs> and like the soft focus and then just smokes the cigarette. And also at the end when she's like bouncing off the walls, DeVito could play the hell out of that. Oh my gosh. I feel like I've, I feel like I've seen him do that exact performance as you described in episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I feel like this would be such a good episode of Always Sunny. I was, Mm -hmm. I was fan casting it in my head. Like the gang finds an Alexa out in back of the bar and then Charlie brings it into the bar and um, Dee would immediately just start forgetting words. Danny DeVito would be like, he would, he would start being, like, controlled by the Alexa and, like, doing what it told him to do. Yeah. Um, and... Frank would definitely try, like, figure out the angle where he can profit from this. Yes. Yes. And then it would turn out that it was Dennis's Alexa all along, and he's secretly manipulating everyone. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Esther, this is, this is something that you do, right? Like, you write yeah, spec scripts, right? Yeah, I want to write right? spec scripts. <laughs> I really think you should. Everything that you just described sounded like like a missing episode of It's Always Sunny that I that I just haven't seen yet. When you were describing that, I was like, oh man, I I really how do, I've seen every episode of It's Always Sunny. How have I not seen this one? And it's because yeah. you just made it up. Come um, on, I FX, really get on that. I really think you should write this episode. Yeah, FX. We're gonna I'm gonna share Esther's contact <laughs> info in the show in the show notes so you can get in touch with her. But I really think you should write that and send it in to uh, Rob McElhaney and Glenn Howerton. All right. Well, I'm glad that we recast Alphaville. I'm not convinced it will be a better movie. It will be a different movie. And it's a movie I want to watch. I want to watch. It would be hilarious. Yeah. Uh, But this movie is great on its own. If you are a sci-fi fan, if you're a Robo fan, if you're a Dino fan, especially if you're a Robo fan this time, (laughs) this movie has one of the coolest original OG robots on film that inspired so many other AIs and consciousnesses, film robots, especially villain film robots. Another one that just sprang to mind is Resident Evil, the, the Red Queen in Resident Evil. So I could just endlessly talk about how many movies this movie Alphaville has inspired. Please check it out if you haven't. Revisit it if it's been a while since you've seen it. It's again directed by uh, Jean-Luc Godard. Esther, if, if any of our 
listeners check this movie out and they've never seen any other Godard film, what what direction would you point them in next? Ooh. So I would say Peril of Foo is a movie that made me fall in love with Anna Karina. And Band Apart is also very good. Breathless was his first film and probably still his most exciting. Vivsa V is also very good. Also starring Anna Karina, who I'm obsessed with, if you couldn't tell. She's fantastic. She's amazing. My God, does she bring a lot to these movies. Yes. Okay, I'm going to make a list that's going to go in the show notes. So check out Esther's curated list of Godard films that you should check out. Yeah, I will note these are all his early films. Okay. Are any of them that you, is Alphaville your favorite Godard film? Yeah, I would, I would definitely put it in the top three. Depending on my mood, it might shift. Okay. I would, I, I, I would, I used to say Peril of Foo is my favorite, but it also has a really horrendous yellow face scene. So oh. that makes it drop a little. Yeah, that's I unfortunate. I can't really watch it anymore. That's totally understandable. That is, um, that's a, that's a big bummer. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. In general, so- Godard was kind of an asshole, but I still like his films. Okay. Well, check out the curated list, but with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and- Caveat. What's that? As a little caveat, as asterisk. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, anytime we're looking into the past, we kind of have to, we don't have to, we don't owe the past anything, really. But we <laughs> we do have to remind ourselves that things were different and some things that we see when we dig deep might be shocking. Yeah. Might not be pleasant. <laughs> so just be prepared to see them, I guess. Thank you again for coming on to Robots vs. Dinosaurs today. I had a lot of fun and I hope that you'll come back as a future guest sometime and bring more unexpected surprises. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. And I am happy to talk to you about robots and or Awesome. I'm glad you had fun. Thank you again for your time, Esther. And have a, I, I never know how to close this. So <laughs> thank you for, thank you for listening to Robots versus Dinosaurs. Thank you. Goodbye. I'm fine. Thanks. Don't mention it. <laughs>